upper left corner of the United States is full of stunning scenery. Beautiful mountains, raging rivers, breathtaking valleys, and so much more. But the Pacific Northwest is also known for something more sinister. This beautiful land also seems to be a breeding ground for serial killers and others who commit heinous acts. I was born in the Pacific Northwest, and I've had a fascination with true crime since childhood. I'm here to tell you the true crime stories of the PNW. So grab your sweater and a cup of coffee. I'm your host, Emily, and this is The Upper Left Corner. Content warning. The following program may contain descriptions of violence that may be upsetting to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Although this seemed like a good thing to Charles at the time, if he had stayed in jail that summer, he may have lived to be an old man. By 9 p.m., the usually quiet downtown area was bustling with an angry mob. As one newspaper phrased it, the crowd was hellbent to enforce the decrees of Judge Lynch. Several town leaders once again attempted to intervene, but they were all roughly pushed away. At this point, Sam said to the crowd, My God, haven't I a friend in this town? I never harmed any of you. This week, I have a historical true crime case for you out of Ellensburg, Washington, and it's the case of the Vincent lynchings. But first, let's head to our PNW town profile. Ellensburg, Washington is a small town located in the heart of the state. As of 2019, the population was estimated to be just over 20,000, and it is where Interstates 90 and 82 meet. The valley is best known for the annual Ellensburg Rodeo, being home to Central Washington University, and being a major producer of Timothy Hay. The town was founded in 1871 by John Alden Shouty, who purchased a local trading post called Robber's Roost, And in the 1880s, the town was the leading contender to be the state capital of Washington, as it was located right in the heart of the state. And the population was drastically growing due to the arrival of the Northern Pacific Railway. It was also one of the first cities in the state to receive electricity. A governor's mansion was being constructed in the heart of Ellensburg in what was called the Capitol Hill area in 1889 when a July 4th fire broke out destroying much of the downtown area, causing the state to select Olympia as the state capital. The governor's mansion that was under construction is now apartments. A few notable people who have called Ellensburg home include painter John Clymer, quarterback Drew Bledsoe was born in Ellensburg, and the children's YouTube star Blippi. And now on to our story. My one and only source today is the book called Ellensburg's Tree of Justice, The Vincent Lynchings by Howard D. Baumgart. I purchased the last copy of this book from the Kittitas County Historical Museum, and I was glad I was able to get my hands on it. Here we go. 
Samuel Vinson was born in 1841 to a large family full of successful and well-liked people. However, he did not live up to the family reputation. His father had immigrated from Britain to Canada in the early 1800s, and Samuel was born and raised in New Brunswick. He married a local girl named Martha, who was unable to read or write. Samuel and Martha immigrated to Minnesota in 1866 and promptly applied for U.S. citizenship on March 15th. The tragedies for this family started in the childbearing years. Martha gave birth to six children and two were stillborn. The two oldest surviving children were born in Canada, a boy named Miles and a girl named Minnie. Miles passed away at 11 years old due to a drowning accident. They then moved to Minnesota and had two more boys. Charles, who was the other main character in this story, and Fred, who was born with moderate mental disabilities and paralysis of the right side of his body. The disabilities and injuries were the result of brain damage from the use of forceps at birth. Around 1884, Samuel, his wife, and the three surviving children migrated to the Washington Territory. It is believed that, like many others, they were attracted to the Tacoma area due to the train service that commenced in 1883. Records show that the Vincent's daughter, Minnie, was married to a Tacoma man in 1885. Samuel owned 160 acres of mostly undeveloped land north of Gig Harbor and east of Purdy. They sold this land and would acquire and sell land several times in the area over the next several years. However, Minnie and her husband moved across the Cascades to Ellensburg in 1888, where they purchased a house. But back in Pierce County, her brother Charles had started his life of crime. According to criminal records, Charles was described as aggressive, mean, and antisocial. He was a known alcoholic and had been arrested in Seattle for a gun violation and resisting arrest in 1887. He had pulled a pistol on a group of people out of anger and threatened their lives, and when a Seattle police officer attempted to arrest Charles on the warrant, he pulled out his pistol once again and threatened to shoot the officer. Unable to post the $250 bail, he sat in jail awaiting trial. A grand jury returned a ruling of not a true bill on the resisting arrest charge, meaning he was free on that one, and no sentencing documents were found on the firearm offense, so it is unclear how much time he actually served or if he was even fined. His next offense would come the following year. When he and two others pulled off a brazen robbery in Hillhurst, about 14 miles from Tacoma, the postmaster and hotel owner, Forrest J. Hunt, was talking with an acquaintance when three men walked in asking for a room. Moments later, two of the men pulled revolvers and demanded money. Hearing a ruckus downstairs, a hotel guest came down to see what was happening, and he was also robbed. Charles and his accomplices also robbed the room of the hotel owner's young daughter. They then took two hostages and walked them about 500 yards away from the hotel while shooting warning shots in the air. The newspaper called the Daily Ledger of Tacoma reported the trio made off with about $28 worth of cash and valuables. However, during the grand jury, it was discovered to be considerably less, totaling $19.50. The grand jury handed down a true bill. The judge signed a warrant and the sheriff made the arrests of all three suspects. 
Charles pled guilty and was sentenced to two years hard labor in the newly constructed Walla Walla State Penitentiary, which was a 300-mile train ride away. During his prison stay, his father Sam, mother, and younger brother moved to several areas in Mason County, mostly around the Allen area. Records show the family appeared to be having financial troubles, as there were multiple mortgages on properties that went unpaid and records of untraditional financing to pay off the old mortgages and strange property deeding. Sam and an acquaintance had started a contracting business, but the partnership did not last long. He also was in the fur trade and planted an orchard, of which he sold the fruit. When Charles was released from prison, he went to work for his father. Their first project was building a large barn structure on their property. During this time, the father and son duo were noted in the local papers for successful hunting endeavors. They seemed to really enjoy their life in Mason County, but it wouldn't last for long. In 1891, the Vincents constructed a saloon for a prominent businessman in Allen named John Eberhardt. Once built, the Vincents became regulars at the saloon and neither held their excessive liquor particularly well. One day, Charles was day drinking and John Eberhardt cut him off for being too intoxicated. Charles pulled a knife and attempted to stab the saloon owner, but Eberhardt pulled a rifle and shot Charles in the neck. The shot went clean through, just below the ear, and barely missed his jugular vein. He was transported to Fanny Paddock Hospital, which is now known as Tacoma General. He recovered shockingly fast and was out of the hospital within a few weeks and back to work for his dad. The sheriff arrested John Eberhardt, who was around 60 years old. He was able to post his $1,000 bail and went on trial. Many witnesses to the saloon incident testified in Eberhardt's favor, and it took a jury all of 15 minutes to acquit him. Not long after, the saloon burnt to the ground, and Eberhardt suspected Charles. However, there was not enough evidence to prove that he had done it. But suspiciously, right after the saloon was destroyed, Charles took to the woods. He camped out, killed game, and survived off the land. There was also a string of holdups and petty crimes that were speculated to be Charles, but he was not arrested for those either. In 1893, the Vensons sold their farm in 80 acres. For that summer, they moved to Latona, which is now the Wallingford District of Seattle, north of Lake Union. Sam and Charles worked on a construction project and were boarded at a local hotel. One day, while waiting on the top platform of a 3rd Avenue trolley car, a man bumped into Charles while carrying his laundry. With his quick temper, Charles turned around and punched the man in the neck, which caused him to fall off the trolley car, a distance of about 10 to 12 feet. The Vincents exited the trolley, and when it came back around, the driver found the man still laying on the ground. The man was taken to Providence Hospital where he remained for a long time, although no further records were found. A warrant was issued for Charles, who went MIA once again, and Sam Vincent finished the house in Seattle and joined his wife in Ellensburg, where she had been staying that summer to help her daughter, who had just welcomed a child. Charles resurfaced in 1895, working for the Northern Pacific Railroad Company in Tacoma for a brief period of time before being sent to an outpost for the railroad in Leicester, which is halfway between Tacoma and Ellensburg. This is where he began running with a gang of unsavory characters. 
The gang had knowledge of an April train that would be coming through carrying the cash for the payroll of the Tacoma employees that would amount to around $45,000. As the gang planned their heist, Charles began working with the police and became an informant, sharing information of when and where the heist was planned. On the day that the robbery was to occur, the train carried an extra car full of heavily armed lawmen. The gang attempted to intercept the train west of Cleelum near Roslyn in Kittitas County, but the train took longer than anticipated to stop and went about 100 yards further than expected, which spooked the gangsters who then fled. But law enforcement was crawling in the area and a posse was able to catch up with some of them, but they weren't sure what to charge them with since they hadn't actually gone through with the heist. And the only word they had to go on was that of Charles Vinson, who was a convict and had a bad reputation. In fact, it ended up turning around on Charles when one of the alleged conspirators claimed that Charles had perjured himself during his hearing, and he was arrested on this complaint charge on May 15, 1895. His trial was set for the first Monday of September 1895, and he would have to spend that summer in jail, unable to make his $2,000 bail. However, the prosecutor filed a motion to drop the charges after he had a chance to further investigate the case and he was released from jail in June. Although this seemed like a good thing to Charles at the time, if he had stayed in jail that summer, he may have lived to be an old man. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Smile Brilliant. I am one of the 40 million Americans who grind their teeth at night. There can be many causes such as stress, anxiety, or an abnormal bite, and chronic teeth grinding can lead to worn enamel, tooth decay, sleeplessness, and expensive dental procedures. The best solution for teeth grinding is the custom-fitted night guard. However, it's costly, with the average dentist charging between $200 and $300 per guard, and you will grind through several a year. Using Smile Brilliant's LabDirect process, you can get the same custom-fitted night guards for as little as $45 per guard. Not only that, but as an upper left corner listener, enjoy 30% off site-wide at smilebrilliant.com using code UPPERLEFT. That code is also good on their other amazing products, such as their whitening trays or electric toothbrushes. Head over to smilebrilliant.com today. And now back to the story. Since his parents were now living in Ellensburg to be near Minnie, who would produce Samuel and Martha's only grandchildren, Charles decided to call it his home as well. It was a hot summer day on Sunday, August 11th, 1895, and Samuel and Charles were day drinking, but out of money. By the afternoon, they took to begging for money outside of the Teutonia Saloon in downtown Ellensburg. The saloon was located on the north side of 3rd Avenue between Main and Pearl Street in the Cadwell Lions building. Sam approached a Mr. Wolverton at around 6 p.m. that evening, demanding that he buy them drinks, stating, you have money, I saw you get a $20 gold piece changed here last night. And two men were going to follow you and rob you, but I told them you were a good fellow so they didn't do it, and you ought to treat. Wolverton worked for the Butcher Lumber and Wood Company and explained to the Vincents that the money they had seen him change before belonged to butchers, and he attempted to leave the saloon. Samuel grabbed the man and threatened him, at which point John Berglin, also known as Dutch John, came into the saloon prompting Sam to let Wolverton go so that he could harass Dutch John. He was meeting up with some friends and bought them around as soon as he walked in. Sam asked if he would buy one for him too. 
and Dutch John responded that he would not buy him a drink since he had already loaned him $2, which has never been repaid. A barroom brawl began, and things escalated quickly. As Sam grabbed a knife and stabbed Dutch John in the right side just below the ribs, in reaction, Dutch John grabbed a whiskey bottle and repeatedly slammed old man Vincent over the head until he slumped to the floor. Just before the brawl at the saloon, Charles Vincent had been in the Mason Dory restaurant hassling the manager, who was a well-respected Chinese-American named Frank Moe. Even though he had brandished his pistol, Moe was able to escort him out of the restaurant without incident, and Charles had walked into the Tetonia Saloon as things were escalating to violence. Frank Ubelacker was the bartender that evening and attempted to break up the fight using a wooden mallet that was kept on hand to open kegs. Frank's partner at the saloon, named Michael Kolhep, heard the commotion while working in the back office and came out to assist Frank. As he ran up on the fight, Charles shot him through his right lung. Kolhep was still able to wrestle Charles to the ground and disarm him, and the other saloon patrons jumped in to hold him and Sam until the deputy city marshals could arrive. They placed both father and son under arrest and took them to the county jail. If you're squeamish, skip forward like 10 seconds here. I'll give you a second. Okay, Dutch John's intestines were protruding from the stab wounds. So he was holding them in with his hands as he staggered out the doors and walked himself to the doctor's office around the corner. Okay, welcome back, squeamish friends. So we have Dutch John at the doctor's office on Pearl Street, and Michael Kolhep was assisted to his room upstairs where a doctor was summoned. The doctor observed a 44 caliber bullet had entered his chest about two inches from his nipple and exited near the shoulder blade about three inches from his spine. Quite ironically, the bullet that passed through Kolhep ended up lodging into old man Vincent's wrist. About two hours after sustaining the gunshot wound at the hand of Charles Vinson, Kolhep died from his injuries. The prognosis for Berglund was good, as the intestines had not been cut, and the doctor was able to dress the wound and get him resting comfortably. Immediately, the town was up in arms. The Vincents had been nothing but trouble, and now one of their good men was dead and the other was horribly injured. Rumblings of a lynching were underway. This prompted the city marshal to close down all saloons in town for the evening and place extra guards at the jail. But by 10.30 p.m., no attempts had been made and the streets were quiet. Meanwhile, Martha, who was by all reports a good but abused woman, wasn't aware of the trouble her husband and son had caused until she arrived for an evening church service that night. The pastor spoke of the horrible acts committed by a father-son duo, without mentioning names, but that was enough for Martha to realize they were talking about her husband and her son, and she fainted. The coroner lived in Cleelum, about 25 miles away from the incident, and there were no more trains running that night, so he made his way to Ellensburg first thing Monday morning. A coroner's jury was arranged that very day for the death of Michael Kolhep, and by 4 p.m., the preliminary hearing was held. The courtroom was crowded, but the hearing went along as expected, and the crowd stayed under control. The Vincents were returned to their county jail cells for the evening. The following day, Tuesday the 13th, Dutch John's condition worsened, and he was to have surgery that afternoon. He got his affairs in order and executed his will. However, an infection set in and killed him before the surgery could take place. 
Anger took over the town at this point, and the rumblings of lynching the Vincents got louder. Both of the victims were highly respected members of the town, and both were German immigrants who were part of a large German community called Dutch Flats that was located up the Nanum Creek area. Also contributing to the mob's reasoning to lynch the Vincents was the fact that three years earlier there had been a fiasco after a group of Roslyn robbers had been tried and convicted in a Kittitas County court. However, new evidence came to light afterwards that the convicted men could not have committed the crime and were set free. Once the genuine criminals were caught and on trial, the jury couldn't agree on a verdict, and the county was nearly bankrupt by this point and not able to afford a third trial, and those criminals were released. This caused the friends and family of the victims to worry that they might not see justice for Dutch John or Michael either, and a vigilante justice seemed like their only option to guarantee it. By 9 p.m., the usually quiet downtown area was bustling with an angry mob. As one newspaper phrased it, the crowd was hellbent to enforce the decrees of Judge Lynch. The sheriff had seven guards and himself to stand watch over the Vincents that night, and he gave the key to their cell to another deputy who was instructed to not be on site that night, ensuring that no one would be able to get to the inmates. But around midnight, a group of 50 to 100 men, some wearing masks, descended upon the county jail. The city marshals had attempted to disperse the crowd, but when they failed, they retreated to City Hall to ring the fire bell to warn the guards that trouble was headed their way. The City Hall bell prompted the louder electric whistle at the Northern Pacific Roundhouse to begin sounding as well. According to an Ellensburg Fire Department report, the railroad whistle was looked into and reported as a false report at 12.15 a.m. as they were warning of a mob breaking into the county jail. The guards at the jail were outnumbered and outarmed, and the sheriff was forced to tell the crowd that he had given the keys to a deputy who he had told to get away for the night. A witness states that the guards were not expecting trouble that night and had placed their weapons on the bed of the sheriff's room at the jail. And when they went to retrieve them, as the angry mob grew closer, they realized that the door had accidentally locked with the keys and guns inside. This witness felt like this likely saved the guards and the mob from bloodshed that night. Some of the mob left to track down the deputy, while others began working on breaking into the cells without the keys. The mob smashed a door to gain entrance into the jail, twisted off a padlock on an iron door, and this put them at the cells containing the Vincents. Apparently the cells were locked from the inside with no way out, but you could just open the doors from the outside if you were able to get through the steel box on each cell. It proved to be difficult and many of the men worked on different entry points. So as one was attempting to break into the steel box, another was attempting to chisel at the door hinges. Meanwhile, Charles Vinson was having a grand old time taunting the mob. He was even shot at twice, but he was missed. The jail was lit via candlelight, and Charles would take his candle under his blanket, making it difficult for the lynch mob to see. In the other cell, his father had sobered up and was quiet and somber. Town leaders, including the judge who had overseen the hearing earlier in the day, and clergymen, attempted to de-escalate the situation to no avail. Around two hours after the crowd gained entry into the jail, they were able to break into the cells, and with a little fight, they got ropes around the men's necks. Old Man Vincent suffered a head injury during the scuffle. 
They led the Vincents to a telephone pole on 6th and Main, but the mob leaders decided against hanging them there. They moved on to the town doctor's house at 606 Main Street, but did not find an adequate spot there either and moved on to a third location at 7th and Pearl Street in front of a house. However, the husband that owned the house approached the crowd asking them to move elsewhere because it was very upsetting to his wife. So they finally settled one block up to the northeast corner of 7th and Pine, where they had selected a sturdy tree with adequate limbs. There was only one house on that block owned by a family by the name of Davidson, and they were not home to protest, and the rest seemed to be an open lot where their children played. Several town leaders once again attempted to intervene, but they were all roughly pushed away. At this point, Sam said to the crowd, My God, haven't I a friend in this town? I never harmed any of you. When asked for final words and faced with imminent death, Charles said, Gentlemen, you will be sorry for this. I ask no pity for myself, but pity for my mother. Give my love to my mother. Many willing hands helped to toss the ropes over the limbs, and they pulled Sam's rope up first, about a foot off the ground. Charles followed as the crowd yelled things like, Your paw's up there. Go and see him. He was lifted only about an inch off the ground, but that was enough. Witnesses state that neither of the Vintons put up much of a fight as they slowly choked to death, which took about 20 minutes before there were no signs of life. Unlike many other lynchings of the same era, no shots were fired at the Vintons, and the crowd watched on for about 15 minutes to make sure they were dead and then dispersed. The Vintons were cut down the following morning at about 8 a.m. by the police. Even after the lynching, the town was abuzz with rumors. There was possibly a picture taken during the lynching that depicted five main leaders responsible for organizing and carrying them out, but in modern day, there is no such picture. Rumor has it that on his deathbed, Dutch John had offered $1,000 to the man who killed the Vincents, and the men who had pulled up the ropes refused the money, and it was given to Martha Vinson, the wife and mother of the lynched men. It is not likely that this rumor is true, however, since it was not mentioned in Dutch John's will that he executed the day of his death, and $1,000 was a significant amount of money, and Martha never appeared to have had that after their deaths. The bodies, once cut down, were taken to the local funeral home. However, the Vincent family were either unable or unwilling to pay the burial costs, so the responsibility fell to Kittitas County. Hundreds of people viewed the bodies at the undertaking parlor. By Thursday morning, August 15th, the memorial services were held and only attended by the wife and mother, Mrs. Martha Vinson, daughter and sister, Mrs. Minnie DeSau, and mentally disabled son and brother, Fred Vinson, who was just shy of his 15th birthday, along with several local clergymen. Samuel and Charles were laid to rest in a pauper's grave at the county cemetery, both in unmarked graves. Many folks around town collected funds to help out Martha and her disabled son, Fred. Another coroner's inquiry was conducted following the lynchings. However, no one specific person was identified to be held responsible. The Ellensburg Capitol published a long, detailed, unsympathetic account of the lynching that concluded with a horrible remark about Quote, a simple-minded brother of Charles who visited the scene of the lynchings early Wednesday morning while viewing the dangling remains of his relatives, end quote. One week later, the Capitol published a retraction, but not quite an apology. 
Michael Kolhep's funeral was held at St. Andrew's Catholic Church on the morning of August 13th. It is believed he is buried at the Holy Cross Catholic Cemetery. However, no marker is visible these days. Dutch John was buried on August 14th at the IOOF Cemetery, where a small marker is still visible to this day. In the weeks after the lynchings, the prosecuting attorney began investigating and putting a case together against those involved in the lynchings. He began receiving threats from the public, warning him against arresting the mob leaders. However, he continued on. The investigation would prove to be difficult, as the event occurred in the dark, many wore masks, and some of the rumored lynchers were prominent leaders in the community. Most people in town did not participate in the lynchings, but many also didn't take too much issue with it, as the common sentiment was that they got what they deserved. And finding a jury who would convict the lynchers would prove to be difficult. As news spread across Washington about the lynchings, other areas were appalled by the vigilante justice. The Seattle Times called it a shame and a disgrace. Ellensburg was punished by having all saloons closed down on Sunday, August 18th, and the governor sent in the bluecoats to oversee the town, and the sheriff swore in extra deputies. Members of the American Protective Association also arrived to take measures to ensure law and order. They held a meeting at the Methodist Church called Law, License, Lynching, and Liberty. On Monday the 19th, after all the reinforcements had arrived, eight arrest warrants were served on Ellensburg men accused of being the leaders of the lynch mob. Two of the men included Frank Ubelacker, who was the co-owner of the Tetonia Saloon with Michael Kolhep, and the former deputy county treasurer, Mike Linder, who was set to be married that week but had to delay the wedding. All of the arrests took place without incident. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Your business deserves the same expertise as that of a Fortune 500 company. If you need a CIO-level service, why hire a full-time staff member at $250,000 a year when you can get this on-demand service for fractions of the cost? As your CIO on demand, we'll give you the steps you need to take so as to minimize interruption to your business and profitability and provide you and your business with training and education to prevent future attacks. To get an efficiency review for your business today, contact us at www.ee-services.com. The Upper Left Corner merch store is open. Head on over to upperleftpodcast.com to check out the selection of shirts, tanks, crewnecks, and hoodies. My personal favorite is the tie-dye tee that my friend Sarah helped me design. Check out the new logo and see if you can spot the PNW Easter eggs and keep checking back for new items. I'm working on wine glasses, coffee mugs, and stickers. Thanks for your support. And now back to the story. They were arraigned as a group on the charge of murder in the first degree. A large number of the witnesses were interviewed on Wednesday, which led to three of the eight men being released due to lack of evidence. And the remaining five were examined by the prosecution, and all five were held without bail until a superior court trial could be held in the fall. As they waited, more arrests were made, including a violent one. One man was working at a mill near the German settlement when a deputy placed him under arrest. A fight ensued in the buggy on the way back into town, and both the deputy and the arrested man fell out of the buggy. The deputy struck the man over the head with a rock, causing a horrible head injury. 
He was taken to the doctor where he would recover until he was well enough to go to jail. He and two others were held in the lynchings of Charles, aside from the five supposed leaders, who appeared in Superior Court on September 2nd to plead not guilty. The trial got underway on September 16th with a judge from King County, as Judge Graves was present the night of the lynchings and had tried to stop it. Many witnesses were called, and the court would run from early morning until late into the night. On September 20th, both sides rested, and the jury was sent to deliberate after a message from the judge stating that even if they believed the Vincents got what they deserved, if the five people had participated beyond a reasonable doubt, they should be found guilty of murder in the first degree. The following day, on Saturday, September 21st, it was announced that a verdict had been reached, and people packed the courthouse. The sealed verdict was handed to the judge who read it aloud. The judge addressed the courtroom and solemnly announced the not guilty verdict. By the following Monday, the other men being held were also released. This ending the five-week fiasco that had consumed the town of Ellensburg. However, the effects of the lynchings would linger for many years to come, in town reputation and financially. The trial cost around $1,200, which, on an already struggling county, made things even worse. The townspeople were already overtaxed, trying to make up for the failed trials of the Roslyn robbers, and this trial would again cause a tax hike. Many people frowned upon Ellensburg's decision to have saloons open on the Sabbath, as most of the state had a blue law in effect, closing all saloons on Sundays to avoid troubles. The initial barroom brawl took place on a Sunday, so many articles pointed out that none of this would have happened if Ellensburg had abided by the blue law. This was refuted in the Ellensburg localizer in October of 1896, who cleared up a few misnomers about the lynchings and Ellensburg in general. While some pillars in the community were involved, there were many who decried the lynching and had tried to disperse the crowd, who may have actually been as small as 50 people. There were many people mentioned in the article, such as the founder of the town, clergymen, and commissioners of the county who all disagreed with the lynchings. Since Samuel Vinson had left behind his wife and mentally disabled teenage son, Fred, with no money or land, the county stepped in to help them. One year after the lynchings, in August of 1896, the Kittitas County Auditor completed an application for Fred to be placed. And hang on here, I just want to clarify that the names of the facilities is actually what they were called at the time, according to the book that is my source this week. And I would never, ever use these words when describing a disabled person. So, since Martha could not read or write, the county auditor applied to place Fred at the Washington State School for Defective Youth in Vancouver, and ultimately the application was accepted and Fred was placed in the Department of Feeble-Minded in January of 1897. Martha and Fred moved to Vancouver and they were cared for by a physician and his wife who had several other boarders as well. According to county records, Money was regularly sent from Kittitas County to the physician to help cover the costs of Fred and Martha. In September of 1900, Martha passed away and is buried in Vancouver. In 1906, the Department of Feeble-Minded was closed down and moved to a new facility called the Annex at Eastern State Hospital and Medical Lake. Records show that Fred did not move at that time and likely remained in the care of the physician and his wife. 
1915, the State Institution for the Feeble-Minded opened in Medical Lake and is now called Lakeland Village. And in the 1920s, Fred became listed as an inmate there. However, I think he would now be referred to as a patient. It is believed that he died sometime during the 20s, but no official record has been located. The tragedy didn't end there for this branch of the Vincent family. One year after the lynchings, Minnie and her husband moved their family to Missouri for nine years before returning west. Two of their three daughters struggled with mental illness into adulthood and spent their last days in the Idaho State Hospital at Orofino. The oldest daughter had been 10 years old at the time of the lynchings of her grandfather and uncle. In 1937, the Yakima County Sheriff John M. Potts told the Yakima Herald Republic that when he was a young boy, a man came to inform his father of the lynch party happening in town and that his father told the man he wanted no part of it. However, he was very curious and snuck out of the house that night to witness it. This was nearly 42 years after the incident, and it's important because he was able to detail in a first-hand account the events of that night, like the fact that he estimated 300 people participated in the lynch party and only 10 guards had been stationed to protect the Vincents. Another account of the story was offered by Mary Kern, whose parents owned the lot where the lynchings took place. The Davidson family had been camping the night that this occurred, and when they got home, many people expected them to cut the tree down, but they decided to keep it as a reminder of what mob violence could result in. In the fall after the lynchings, people in the neighborhood began seeing a tall apparition figure in the area that the lynchings took place. Not only the Davidson family, but other neighbors in the area had seen the tall figure appear every night at dusk, making groaning noises and stumbling about. Some accounts claim the figure was around 8 feet tall, and the police offered a reward to whoever was able to catch whatever it was. Finally, someone got brave enough to quietly follow the apparition, and they made it seven blocks west where they witnessed a young farmhand enter an old dilapidated house, take off a long black veil that was being held up by a stovepipe hat, a black gown, and a pair of loose sole shoes that was causing the strange noises, thus ending the ghost scare. The site of the lynchings was purchased by St. Andrew's Catholic Church in 1904, where they cut down the lynching tree and built a church, a rectory, and a school. The land was later sold, the buildings removed, and an Albertson store was constructed and opened for business for many years, and it is currently a grocery outlet. And the Tetonia Saloon building is still standing in historical downtown Ellensburg and is currently a pita pit. And that is the historical story of the Vincent lynchings. This week's wine that I paired with my historical true crime is a 2019 rosé out of the Columbia Valley called And Why Am I Mr. Pink? My husband and I recently celebrated our 13th wedding anniversary. Yes, we got married when we were babies. And our idea of romance these days include a kidless trip to Costco topped off with a delicious meal. I grabbed this bottle at Costco who has never let me down before and I was not disappointed. From the Underground Wine Project, this rosé is a pale pink with vibrant aromas of sour cherry, yellow strawberry, herb, and watermelon rind, lead to a medium-bodied, flavorful palate balanced by a lively, puckering acidity. 
It was delightful and I already have big plans to grab a few more bottles because I feel like it will pair well with a warm summer evening. Cheers and thanks for listening. Upper Left Corner, a PNW true crime podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with a friend. All of the sources for this episode are listed in the show notes and at upperleftpodcast.com. While you are there, check out the Support Victim Causes tab to find the way you can help the victim's families or take a peek at my merch. You can follow me on Instagram at Upper Left Corner Pod. If you have a case suggestion or a PNW wine recommendation, please email me at upperleftpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.